And by the way, my name is Brent. I'm a, a hard Seattle four, apparently. I've just found out, so it's encouraging. Um, I would have pegged it a lot lower than that, so that's... I feel really good right now, which is great, so you guys are in for a treat. Um, uh, I wanted to take a few weeks and talk about how I read the Bible, and as an, alt, as an option, uh, you, if you come and if, if you've ever uh, sat through a sermon or a talk or whatever you want to call them and, and thought, I've never heard it that way, I've never done it that way, or the Bible has just felt intimidating to you, it's felt big, it's felt confusing, it's felt um, like out of touch, uh, dates, uh, you know, all, all this kind of stuff, um, I want to try and help uh, help you along the way um, and, and provides a little bit of assistance. I almost titled this thing, um, uh, this idea of things to keep in mind when reading the Bible, but that just doesn't, it's not as appealing, I don't think, but that's, that's essentially what this is, things to keep in mind uh, when reading the Bible. And if you've ever uh, introduced your significant other to your extended family over the holidays, um, then you know a little bit about the process of what's going to take place here, right? If you've ever been in the car, you're like, all right, you're meeting him for the first time. Let me tell you a little bit something about my dad, right? You need to know, here's a couple of things you need to know about dad, right? Some preface things. This is going to help you understand them as we get there because it's going to be crazy. It's going to be wild. It's going to be something. Here's why they are the way that they are. Like, for instance, if you were going to come over to uh, my grandparents' house, I would, ha- I would have to tell you my grandma is a grandchild of the Depression, okay? Uh, and what I mean by that is she saves everything. Nothing is wasted. Everything can be frozen and reheated. And if you go over to dinner for dinner, she's going to have something for you. She's going to offer it to you, accept it at your own risk and whatever. Like That's kind of how she, she lives and, and she does things. And, and I love her for it, but uh, that's just the reality of it. Um, so for four weeks, we're going to take these kind of bigger pieces and say, these are some big pieces. This isn't comprehensive. This isn't like you're going to be a Bible scholar after this, but hopefully um, things that would be like at the front of your Bible, if you, when you sat, sit down to read and be like, all right, before I get into this, make sure that I cover this. And last week we said, listen, th- this thing is ancient. Um, it's ambiguous in parts and, and it's very diverse. You got a diversity of authors, diversity of thoughts, diversity of how things uh, come and go and change. And, and, uh, and so we continue that a little bit today. And we're talking specifically about Old Testament stuff because here's what I feel like. I feel like um, whenever you, because you know that the Bible's split up into two big sections, right? About three-fourths of it is the Old Testament. About a quarter of it is, the, uh, is a New Testament thing. Um, and it represents a large span of time in the Old Testament, a shorter span of time in the New, and a gap of about 400 years in between that. So, and from the beginning to the end, close to 2,000, 2,500 years. Uh, so it's, it's old. I mean, it's, it's, it's extensive in, in that way. And I want to help you uh, help bring some insights into understanding some of the older pieces of it and why the Jewish scriptures were included at all in the New Testament scripture, because they definitely um, did not have to be when the early church kind of decided, here's what we think is important, and yet they felt like they were valuable enough to do it, and yet there's a clear, distinct way of reading one uh, against the other or, or with the other, or um, when you read them back to back, it reads very, very differently. In fact, when you come into conflict with um, how you uh, perceive like uh, justice and, and rationality in the New Testament. It, there's there's parts of the New Testament that seem to justify slavery or um, uh, women not in leadership pieces or sexual morality in Romans or whatever. And and when you read those, you can you can understand a little bit. Like if you sat down with me, I'd be like, well, hit, listen. I mean, the Roman culture at this time. Here's why the way. Here's why they were the way that they were. I mean, you're talking about a culture that this was kind of matched their surrounding, and that makes sense. And you'd be like, all right. I mean, I, 
I'm glad that we have, you know, whatever uh, evolved or transposed that into a different way of doing things, but I can understand that it's in there and I can't get mad at the Bible for being what it was like, you know, when it was in that way. But when it comes to the Old Testament, it feels sometimes like we're playing chess and they're playing checkers, right? I mean, the jump to relevancy can almost feel insurmountable at times. It feels like story time for a lot of it, uh, but like only half the stories make sense and the other half are crude, gruesome, or fairy tales or some sort of a combination of all three. Um, and that's kind of how we do it. So how then today, how do we, how do we read? What do we keep in mind? And how, the, how does the Old Testament actually work or how do we read this? Um, here's why it is the way that it is. So uh, hopefully that's interesting to you, and uh, we'll move forward with that. And if it's not, we'll be done with the series in a couple of weeks, and you can come back for the other thing. So um, <laughs> when we were on staff, my, my wife and I, we, uh, we were on staff in uh, a church in Bothell area, Seattle area, for about a year. Um, so I was definitely a four over that. At, at that church, I was like a two, probably. It was a good-looking church. But um, there was another uh, pastor, another youth pastor, because I was doing youth ministry at the time. Um, at a big church over there called Overlake Church, and uh, his name was Jake. And we had become acquaintances, right? You, you go to these meetings, and they gather all the youth pastors together and try and, you know, I don't know, talk about a conference or this or that and the other thing, right? So, and you're doing, you're doing ministry. Ministry can be very isolated. Not a lot of people do the things that you do, and, and you don't get a chance to kind of rub shoulders with a lot of people. So it was fun to kind of get, make acquaintances and names, and we became Facebook friends, and that really is the extent of it. Um, I, it's, we're not, we don't call each other up. I don't get his Christmas cards, um, but I do follow him on social media and all this kind of stuff. Um, in 2014, this was after we had come back and planted the church, his daughter, Magnolia, who uh, was three years old at the time, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. If you're in the medical field, it was DIPG. There's a big fancy long word after it. Bottom line is it's not a good one. Um, she fell into the 90% category of kids who don't make it out of the first year post-diagnosis. And less than a year from diagnosis to the day she passed, um, it, was, it was about nine months. I was trying to do the math on it. but it was, and, I, and we watched the whole thing take place, right, from, from a distance, obviously, and not close enough to be like, you know, calling him and, and consoling him, but like close enough to see these videos. Because they made like, they made this incredible video of her. And when you know, like when you know that the time, and they're giving you a window of time and it's your child, I mean, good grief. They made this like crazy, incredibly awesome video. And I wanted to show it, but I can't. And the reason I can't is not because I don't have legal permission to, is because I'd be a freaking hot mess if I showed that. And I would just have to bring the band back up and we'd all just go home, which... Doesn't sound terrible, but um, trust me, it's a really like emotionally touching video in that way. Um, and I remember, I remember watching this all go down in the moment, and Kylie looking over at me as I'm sharing, like, "Did you see the stuff here? This or that, and the other thing." Something to the effect of, "Can you even imagine what that feels like? Can you even imagine what that feels?" And, and you've you felt this before too. You've got you've had a friend go through something, a, a divorce, a, a this, a that, a loss of a, a family member, a, a immediate whatever, and and you've said to yourself, "Can you even imagine?" And you and you want to have empathy, right? But you can't because you can never put yourself in that position. So you just say, "I can't even imagine what that feels like." The answer is always um, no. And so that that's exactly what took place there. Um, every year on her birthday. Even now, even up to this year, he writes about a, a real long post on his social media pages um, about how, you know, Magnolia, today would be your eighth birthday. And uh, this year he posted one and uh, he talked about how uh, he like auto, he did like a Photoshop on the, like her, like st her story starting to fade, like in his own mind. Like he's saying, um, 
as, as he writes, it's like it's been more years without you than what we had with you. And so my, my, my memories of, of how you looked and how you smelt and, and the way that you talked and the way that you laughed are starting to fade in all of this. <clears throat> then uh, this year, their family Christmas card included a picture of their entire family and Magnolia's in the middle there. And a uh, big tagline on it, af- uh, he, Merry Christmas from all of us in this way. And on his about page at their church, because some churches have websites that have about pages of their pastors, not ours, of course, but theirs does. Um, and in there, you can see this little definition of it. And look at the second paragraph. After the loss of the three-year-old daughter, Magnolia Jake has a renewed passion to tell others about the hope and all this kind of stuff. Why does he do this? Why does he bring up, um, you know, five years ago, something that took place uh, in his life? Why is it on his about page? His, <laughs> notice his wife's not on there, but his three-year-old daughter who passed is, right? Why, why do all of this? Is it because... He's a jerk? Yes, that's a, a partly why he does it to me. Like, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just like, is he a jerk because he goes that way? Yes. But why else? Because this was and continues to be the defining traumatic experience of his life. It is the thing, it is the defining traumatic thing. It will forever probably shape him. Um, when you get to know him, I mean, it's, it's awkward. You don't want to like bring it up too early, but he, he recognizes this is the passion. This is why I am the way that I am. This is how, this is like a, a lens by which I see the world and, and, and pastor and lead my family and, and church and, and, and everything else. Um, it was huge. Um, it can't not show up everywhere. The way he passes his church in Woodenville is shaped by this life event. I say all that, because there existed in the history of the Israeli nation an event so tragic and so traumatizing that it shaped a big part of their existence as well, and it can't not show up. And for you to read this and not understand why the scars by which they, they hold on to that come out in their writings and in the things that they do and the stories that they tell and the way that they tell them is to really, really miss it. Am I likening the death of a child to a national tragedy that happened a distant 2,600 years ago? Yeah, I guess that I am, and I, I know that that's risky. But I also know this, that Western Christians, modern Western Christians, have a lot of trouble identifying with the depth and the panic and the pain of what Israel would call the Babylonian exile. So here's what you need to know about the Old Testament. Here's why it is the way that it is, or at least partly why it is the way that it is. Exile was the trauma of the Old Testament, and we dare not underestimate its impact. If you have to leave early or um, you, know, you just wanted to write one thing down or hear some takeaways, I don't have a lot of bullet points today, but this would be the one thing that I would hope you would put. At the very beginning of your Bible, when you write ancient, ambiguous, diverse, it would also be like, don't forget, this is completely Old Testament. Read it through the lens of people who are hurting because of exile, because of a loss of land, of identity, of people, of, of future, of connection with God. We had a promise. feels like God broke his promise. We kind of broke our promise. What do we do now with all of this? So let me walk you through some of the basics of the exile in case you're unfamiliar with it real quick, or um, maybe you've never heard of it before, or just want to refresher on some of the dates involved. And a couple of dates to remember, um, in uh, 930 BC or around there, what we see is the nation of Israel is exited out of, uh, of 
had an exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land. They're there. They split it up between the 12 tribes, uh, and they begin to kind of, you know, get their own space in their own different territories. And then they decide to form sort of two different republics or two different states or nations or whatever you want to call it, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So there's like a fracturing already of like us versus them mentality between the 12 tribes, right? So that's in 930. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom is invaded by the Syrians. We know this because of, uh, of like ancient world history this is written down in the Assyrian culture. This is not just like Bible, like only from the Bible that we hear this. In fact, dates aren't even mentioned in the Bible. Um, typically, it's messaged about here's when, when so-and-so ruled and when so-and-so ruled. Uh, so, but here's what we, we do know just from secular history. Northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians. Uh, and then about 150 years later, the southern kingdom is invaded by the Babylonians. So the Assyrians come in and they kind of stop. They just kind of do their own thing up there. And then what you see a lot of times in the southern kingdom um, is in the writings of the Old Testament, them talking about how bad these guys were and why they deserve this, and then it happened to them as well, all right? So these guys fell apart, and they couldn't keep it together, uh, but we are going to do better than that. And th- so that's part of some of the Old Testament writings. And then, uh, and then what you see is kind of them dialoguing about how do we avoid the same future or whatever. Um, when, when the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians, the landmass in terms of what was taken over by this invading country is about two-thirds of what was taken over in terms of all of Israel. Can you imagine if two-thirds of America was taken over by an invading country, the uh, national narratives that would be in play? We, we know the narrative right now is all about this coronavirus, and it's affected like 80 people in the U.S. Like, imagine two-thirds of the U.S., being, I mean, some of us are like, well, do we really need two Dakotas? I mean, I don't think we do. So that's partly, it's like, whatever. But like, if everything like east of the Rockies was gone, and it was just us on the west of the Rockies, uh, what kind of things would we be talking about? What kind of things would we be saying, well, this is what now it means to be an American? That's some real soul searching uh, that would be taking place. That, I'm trying to place us in that kind of moment or in that same mentality. Then in 586, as I mentioned, after a decade of struggle, the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, take back the best and the brightest Babylonian. Babylon comes in, uh, their king takes back, and this time they they destroy the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, and they take the best and the brightest back with them into Babylon, which is uh, farther east around the Fertile Crescent area. And uh, this means that there's no land, no king, and no temple. Uh, In other words, this religion is now closed. This is now... Dickie's Barbecue Territory, closed for business, not around, not happening, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, whatever. Sorry about your gift cards. Anyways, in uh, any time things like this take place, uh, crisis begets narrative. Um, have you noticed how people piece together stories and ideas to sell themselves on an idea of why things took place in the way that they took place? Um, have you noticed when bad things happen and bad luck or bad whatever, bad decisions or whatever, the narratives that we kind of come up with, that we talk ourselves into, the stories that we tell ourselves to try and explain why this happened so that we can try and piece perhaps back together the way forward or the way out or the way back home, um, we're constantly trying to um, tell ourselves what's, what, what's going on. And, and you see this a lot in this Old Testament story, in these writings, making sense of 
exile, making sense of why this happened. And I don't mean to suggest that nothing had been written down until the 6th century crisis of nationality and faith. I'm not saying that this stuff was all written post-exile. I'm just saying that there are parts in here that definitely were. Certainly they had records of kings, court records, battle records, and poems and songs to express who they were, where they came from, and how their God is wrapped up in all of it. But it's only in the wake of the crisis of God's perceived abandonment I thought we were chosen, I thought we were special, I thought there was something different for us, and now they, we, they lost in the north, but we kind of got that because they were whatever, but us here in the south, up, us where we're kind of the chosen thing, and now we don't really feel all that chosen, in fact, we feel forgotten. They needed to tell their whole story to make sense of how broken their past had been and how shattered it had become. If you're writing things down, another note, without the crisis of exile, the Bible as we uh, know it would not exist, specifically Old Testament. But if there was no exile, there would be really no reason to piece together the Bible in the way that they did. Um, It operated from an oral tradition more like for them. It operated um, with the Torah, the first five books being the most important piece and then the rest of the history books would be just kind of common history books. They wouldn't have the kind of sacred, well, that's the Bible, that's the Holy Scriptures, those are the Jewish Scriptures attached to it, had there been no crisis. And that is how the Bible is born, out of crisis. And the question that drove these ancient writers and editors was the wisdom question that we ended with last week. What is God up to today, right here and right now? What we said last week was all three of these pieces show us that over and over and over again, what we see is what was written down was people in their situations and in their context trying to make sense of how to move forward now with the God that we know, with the spot that we're in, with the circumstance that we find ourselves in, dealing with the consequences of the decisions that we've made, what's the next step forward? What's the next step forward? So what is the Bible? Is it a collection of sayings and treat, you know, uh, epithets and, and, and quotes and this and that and the other thing? No. It's a picture of people trying to make sense of their current reality and figuring out how to move forward. Under, a, uh, under the auspices of a promise of, of God or be, uh, this idea of being chosen uh, people or, or out of uh, a reverence for God or, or whatever. So anyways, that's a big piece. I want to dive into one specific area to kind of show you, give you like a little bit more. If this feels a little bit ethereal and out there and like I can't quite put my hands on it. Then let me, let's walk through a very, very specific example uh, for you today. So um, in the Old Testament, right about in the middle of, of there, there becomes, uh, so you've got law uh, and then you've got uh, some, some, some like poetry and, you know, Psalms is poetry and songs. These would be the songbook for what they would sing. Proverbs was like curriculum for how to raise a family. Ecclesiastes is like this great, like, philosophical millennial, we love it, everything sucks, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then it goes into sort of uh, more historical as a nation um, from the monarchy period. So they, they wander for a while, and then eventually they want a king, just like everybody else has kings. And then what we see in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are a 500-year period of starting with King Saul and all the way through the last king before they enter into exile. So long history of monarchy and, and teachings in that way. Uh, then what happens is if you've ever read through your Bible, like you did the whole, it's January, I'm going to read through my Bible this year, and Genesis was fun, and Exodus was fine, Leviticus was weird, but you're just going to push through, and you get to First Kings and Second Kings, and you're like, all right, this feels 
difficult. It's a lot of battles that I just the numbers feel weird and, and everything else. And then you get to first and second for first and second Kings, first and second Samuel. You get if you plug away through all four of these books, which really originally were just two books, and then and then the biblical authors be like, these are so big and we're going to lose people. Let's split them in half. That'll help, right? So now instead of three long books, you've got six long books. Um, uh, then what happens is in, in the Bible that you probably own at home, in the Bible that you would download on your phone, it's going to go uh, first and uh, second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, one, two, one, two, one, two. Now the problem with that is it's a really bad layout because First and Second Chronicles is a basic retelling of what you just read in Samuel and Kings. It's, it's, it's literally, we're starting all over, it's deja vu, but not like the cool deja vu. It's like in a, do I really have to read all of this again, deja vu way. That's how this is. Um, and, it's, and it feels like bad product placement, and it really kind of is, and the reason, well, What's interesting about that is in Jewish scriptures, in Jewish Bible, if you grew up in a Jewish home, Chronicles is one of the last books in the Old Testament. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are like, this is the capstone, this is the end, because it really tells more of an actual timeline of kind of what we're dealing with in here. Samuel and, and Kings, the authors of those, were dealing with a completely different mindset. They had not... Uh, they, had, they were dealing with um, post-Assyria in the north, but still struggling with um, exile in Babylon. We, are fi- we find ourselves in exile in Babylon. How do we get back? How do we get back home? Wh- where's God in all of this? How could he let this happen to us? And what we see is, I think, Chronicles takes place 100 years or 200 years even after that. This is long. This is, this is the newest of the Old Testament sort of books. And in, when it retells a story it changes some details up in the same way that the older you are, you tend to change stories up about the narratives that got you to where you wanted to be too because now you're different. You're older. You understand more. You kind of get why your grandma is that way or your dad is that way. And there's a little bit of that DNA in you too. So you have a little bit more grace towards them because you see it in you, right? So uh, I want to show you uh, real quickly a story of a guy named King Manasseh who makes his appearance in Kings, in uh, Samuel, uh, sorry, in Second Kings, and then again in uh, Chronicles. So he shows up in Second uh, Kings chapter twenty-one, verse one through eighteen, as the absolute worst king ever. If there was a way to incite God's anger, he found it. Right there was uh, when, when you read through Kings and First Kings, Second Kings, it's like good king, bad king, good king, bad king, and then there, then it sh- kind of bounces back and forth for a little bit, and then it's like bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. It's like it, it, it showed why they're trying to make sense of why we lost or why you know Northern Kingdom is no more, and one of the reasons is because of King Manasseh. In the two courts, here's what he does. Here's the extreme examples of what he did. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts, in other words, pagan religions. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practicing divination, uh, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. This little phrase here would show up like 10 times if you read through those verses, arousing his anger. Then it jumps down to verse 9, but the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray, so they did more evil than the nation's 
uh, the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Why did the northern kingdom fall? It's because of guys like Manasseh and people listened to them and then therefore, and their, what they did was more wicked than even the Assyrians. So of course God's gonna bless the Assyrians as they come in and tackle these people and haul them off. He was so wicked, the author credits him entirely for the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians a few generations later. Even the sweeping reforms of grandson Josiah weren't enough to cancel out his wickedness. Verse 26 of uh, chapter 23. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. And this comes after, by the way, other kings show up. Like his grandson comes in Josiah and he does some pretty good things. And then later on, they're still trying to make sense of why are we in Babylon? Because of Manasseh, that dirty sucker. His sins were so great his sins are so great. We're still, we are being punished for the sins of our ancestors. That's basically uh, what happens here. Then what we have is a retelling of the story, guys, from the Chronicles. Here's their version. Version uh, or Chapter 33 starts out with a lot of atrocities of what he did and continues to be like he's not a great guy or whatever. But according to this author, his sins don't lead Judah into exile, but to his own personal exile. Listen to this. So the Lord brought us against them, the army commanders of the king of Assyria, Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God, except that none of this actually happened. Here's what, here's what this author's doing. He's taking a real-life person named Manasseh who really was bad, who really did lead the people in terrible ways. And then what he's saying here is that a king of Assyria took him to Babylon? That doesn't even make sense. He starts right away with this like obtuse, not the, like the pieces don't fit, the Lego blocks don't work together. This doesn't make any sense. Exactly. He's trying to say, listen, it wasn't really Manasseh. Manasseh is us. They're writing, this is just pulled together, culled together after they've been released from Babylon and, and invited back under the king of Persia to go rebuild their nation and rebuild their walls. And yet they find themselves in this weird, awkward period of not knowing what to do with their life and what, how to make sense of anything. And so what he does is he rewrites the story. And when he does it, he rewrites it saying, they went to Babylon, and while they were there, they realized, or he realized, excuse me, they, he's using code. He's talking about us, or not us. He's talking about the nation of, of Israel. We went into exile, and while we were there, we came to our senses. We realized how flawed we were, and as a result, we got to go back home, and, and then we knew that the Lord, we ultimately knew our allegiances were realigned, and God was back in. This is a retelling of a story to try and make sense of what happened in Babylon, why God allowed us to go there, and perhaps what our future is as a result of it. So what caused the national exile, uh, the national exile according to 2 Chronicles, if it wasn't Manasseh's sins? The people were at fault. And essentially, they're, he's saying this. I'm going to use this imagery, but listen up. Enough blaming other people, even consensus terrible kings. The problem was us the entire time. It was never really about him. There was a, this was a symbolic retelling of Judah's exile and return home after the caps had learned their lessons and repented of their sins. It's good to be back in the promised land, but centuries had passed since Judah had last had a king on the throne. 
Because you got to remember, like, that exile was for a, 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 just a short period of time, and then they come back, and Ezra and Nehemiah, you see them rebuilding the walls and trying to reestablish a national identity, but now they've got new landlords. For, for, for a while, it's the Persians and, and, and their thing, and then Alexander the Greek and the Greeks, and they will never again have their own ownership over their land. They'll never again be allowed to rebuild their temple in the way that they want to do it. They'll never again have the independence, even though they live with this idea, this national identity, that we are the chosen people of God. Why, why, why would he choose us and then let us rot in Babylon and then like a glimmer of hope to bring us back, but then really ultimately silence in all of this? Their questions are changing. Their question is no longer, what did we do to deserve exile in Babylon? Their question now has shifted to, when will God restore, the, uh, when will God restore us or them to their former glory? When will we once again experience God's favor and blessing? And how much longer do we have to wait for a sign that God has not abandoned us? This is all real interesting stuff for me because what it shows is, and the moral of the story is, if a guy like Manasseh can repent and be forgiven, surely God will do the same for you here and now in the present moment if you choose to repent the chronicle, the, the, the guy who wrote Chronicles leveraged the story to let the past speak to a very new and different situation. This whole thing is an act of wisdom, of reading the moment and reimagining what God is doing and what God will do in the hopefully not too distant future. So when we say, when I say, listen, we gather together each week to study reverently what took place in scripture and then to kind of interpret it and reimagine it in our own way because they didn't deal with the same struggles that we deal with. And we're gonna have to kind of leverage this for our own story and we are in an interpretive community. And we look at this and and the Bible doesn't read as an instruction manual with steps on this, you do this and then you do this and you do this and you do this. It's a book of historical people who have tried to do their best to operate with a level of wisdom in the moment, reading the situation, what would God want us to do with this? We see this happening in the Old Testament. We're going to see it happen in the New Testament. And then it continues on even to today. So what role, here's how I read the Bible. Here's a pattern for us, for the operation of it as a church, as an interpretive community. And we go, what, what, and, and as we read our situation in the world, and what we're going through, what, is the, what does this inform us in? What kind of wisdom is this calling us towards to be able to move forward with this? The Judaites did what anyone under their circumstances would have done. When they wrote this, the reason that the Old Testament is the way that it is, is because they desperately wanted to tell their story. This is who we are. This is where we came from. This is what we believe about God. This is where we believe things went wrong. This is our hope for a renewed future. So my big idea for today is like that of the biblical writers themselves, our sacred responsibility is to engage faithfully and seriously enough the stories of the past in order to faithfully and seriously reimagine God in our present moment. And the Bible doesn't end that process of reimagination. It promotes it. So week in and week out, we come, and we gather together like this, and every single week, I pull out some verse somewhere, and I read this story, and I, and, and I say, listen, this is not a self-help community. I don't have five points that I just pulled from Tony Robbins to help you get your finances in order and move better at life and have more kids and do this and whatever. I don't know. Uh, it, it's not a, a, about any of that. It's about every single week, we look back 
look back at our history, look back at how God has spoken and revealed himself to people as they interpreted wisely how to move forward. And then we say, and what do we do now? And what do we do with this? In 2020, with the way that the, the government is the way that it is and the world situations are the way that they are and politics and, 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 and uh, justice and, and love and all of these things, that's how it informs it. And I just think that that's something you need to know about the Old Testament. And I think maybe that will help alleviate some kind of fears and concerns or whatever. How does the story of Jonah affect me? How does the story of an axe head floating affect me? How does the story of all of this? Listen, what we see are a bunch of people trying to make sense of their world, which should come as an encouragement for us. As we're just a bunch of people, idiots sometimes, trying to make sense of our world and take next steps forward. So the Bible can be used as a resource and as a tool to inspire and inform and guide us along the way. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that somehow this uh, truth would uh, be at, our, at the forefront of our minds as we realize that this is not just historical knowledge just to kind of tuck away and be like, well, that's good if I ever you know, need a quiz someday, but it's... But it's something that instead should inspire and give us cause for energy to be able to do the same thing now, that we get to participate, that we are invited into the process of reimagining what you want to do in this world, that your kingdom is coming and and we get a chance to kind of play a part in it. And we got to figure out what that looks like for our lives and the situations and the roles that we play and the life challenges that we face. So give us the wisdom to know what it looks like, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.